Spencer, our good friends on the East Coast got walloped by a blizzard this weekend. Mm. Fat bike sales are through the roof. Oh, it looked so cold and miserable. But hey, if you're a cyclist and you are in cold and miserable conditions, our friends at Be Cool have a product for you. Be Cool manufactures smart trainers. They also have an online training simulator that has thousands of different routes so that you can keep training indoors when it's cold and terrible outside. And you won't lose your mind because it'll keep you entertained. It's true. And it sounds like uh, Be Cool has an offer here for Friends of the Velo News podcast. Absolutely. So sign up right now. You go to becool.com slash partners slash Velo News. I know it's kind of a long URL. We'll put it in the description for you for this podcast. Go to that URL and you'll sign up for a free three-month trial of their online simulator. And you'll have a chance to win a Be Cool trainer. So you get the whole setup. That's becool.com slash partners slash fellow news. Go check it out. So even if it snows in your neck of the woods, you can still stay fit. On with the show. Uh, you're tuned into the Wellness Podcast. I'm Fred Dreyer here with Spencer Paulison. <laughs> Spencer, um, the Peter Sagan incident from this past year, guess what? Never happened. Just didn't happen. Mm. Just swept that right under the rug. Swept that one under the rug. Uh, It is the episode for the third week of December, second week of December. Who's counting? And we have finally had some closure with the biggest story of 2018, and that was Peter Sagan's disqualification from the Tour de France. And as it turns out, I guess both parties are just kind of willing to let bygones be bygones. Yeah, they settled out of court. They didn't even go to trial at the Court of Arbitration for Sport. Mm -hmm. Uh, Kind of a little weird. And then Dimension Data piles on after the decision was made saying they thought they should have been involved in the decision. It's kind of like, uh, can the UCI do anything right? I don't know. (laughs) It just reminds me of those many afternoons this past summer that we spent watching weird little gifs on the internet of Peter Sagan's elbow going out and then going back in. And did Mark Cavendish hook him? And did he not? And just replaying that crash over and and over again. And then after that, we spent two weeks watching Tour de France sprints that were pretty boring. Yeah. And the Tour de France wasn't the same. It just wasn't the same. It wasn't as exciting. It wasn't as good. Now, was kind of a bummer. Too well, bad. we're going to talk about that topic and a few other topics with a very special guest we have this week. Uh, on this week's episode of the Venus Podcast, we have Jeremy Whittle, renowned author, longtime contributor to the Times in London, and he's covered cycling for the better part of the last, I believe, three decades. He's actually a real cycling expert, yeah. not like us. He's He actually knows what he's talking about. I have about. no idea what you're talking about. Ah. We are bona fide <laughs> cycling experts. Uh, we caught up with Jeremy because Jeremy traveled to Switzerland this past week to interview the new UCI president, David Lapartian, about a long list of topics, everything from Lapartian's uh, seeming obsession with uh, motorized fraud to uh, what should have happened in the Sagan case Mm. uh, and everything in between. So let's catch up with Jeremy and see how his chat went. Uh, Vell News Podcast, Fred Dreyer here with Spencer Paulson. Spencer, we are so lucky today to be joined by a guest who knows more about pro cycling than, I don't know, 99.9% of all the people out there, uh, and that is Jeremy Whittle. Jeremy is a regular contributor to The Times, and he is also 
and author. In fact, his most recent book, Vantu, Sacrifice and Suffering on the Giant of Provence, is in stores now. Great stocking, stocking stuffer for the cyclist in your life. That would be a large stocking, I'd say, right? Is yeah. it a hardcover or is it? No? Uh, it, 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 you'd really have to jam it in that stocking. Well, you rode Mont Vaughn too. Did, did you sacrifice? Did you suffer on that mountain? I did suffer. That is a really hard climb. Put it on your bucket list. I would totally recommend Mont Vaughn too to anyone. Jeremy, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, how's everything out there in the UK? We've got snow, would you believe, which creates major, major issues for British people because we never get snow. So when we get snow, even if it's kind of the kind of level of snow that you would dust on a lemon drizzle cake, uh, it creates havoc. And so we're, we're living with a kind of snowy meltdown, even even just, you know, in all the urban areas, people just can't cope with it. Oh, Le- no. Lemon drizzle cake. Ooh, that, that sounds nice. <laughs> that sounds a lot better than yeah. the uh, British cuisine that we tend to make fun of on this podcast, like drippings and blood sausage and uh, jellied eels. I assume everyone's still eating jellied Eel, eels yeah. over there. Yeah, I've just had a big, big plate actually. So uh, <laughs> if there's any background noises, excuse me. You know. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, let's get into it. Jeremy, you just returned from a trip to Switzerland where you sat down with our new UCI president, David Lapartian, did a long interview with him, wrote a piece on him for The Times. And a good place to start, Jeremy, is take me through this chat with him and what was your overall impression of the, uh, the new UCI president? Well, I was, it's funny because I was thinking about this on the way home after, after we'd met. And uh, I've actually known four UCI presidents now and interviewed the last four, which is all the presidents that the UCI have had since they were formed, which is Verbruggen, obviously Pat McQuay, Brian Cookson, and, uh, and now Monsieur Lepartien. And he's definitely, I'd say, the most media-friendly and the smoothest of the quartet that I've met. And probably the most media savvy as well, because he he was uh, incredibly welcoming, incredibly easygoing. There were no there were no kind of confrontational moments in the interview at all, which really characterised my dealings with Heinrich Bruggen and with Pat McQuaid, uh, who both previous presidents before Brian Cookson. Brian Cookson uh, was always kind of I think people now see him in that way slightly avoidant and evasive um and never you could never get him to answer the question directly whereas the party does but i don't know there's always maybe it's the macron influence in france because they you know their recently elected president has been accused of being kind of slightly blairite in that he's very good with the media very very um very friendly very charming you know quite quite kind of an, an attractive personality but Ultimately, where's the where's the beef kind of thing? And Lapartin was a little bit like that. We met in his office at the UCI, which is in Egler, which is near Geneva, on a very cold, snowy day. Um, but he was he was good value, um, and we talked about a whole range range of subjects. The main the main things I wanted to talk about was obviously um, the reality or the, the the myth and the myth and reality of motorised technical, technological fraud, motor doping, effectively. And then also um, Brian Cookson and the Sagan Cavendish Affair, race juries, all of those, all of those things as well. But um, yeah, he gave me gave me a good hour and fifteen minutes of his time, and uh, it was interesting. But we'll see; it's early days. Yeah, you know, you reminded me of a chat that I had with Cookson, where I, I did enjoy talking with Brian Cookson, but the amount of filibustering that went into every single answer was, I would say, ninety five percent of the answer. And he always seemed a little sort of 
hurried and um, a little little cagey and nervous, but then you would get an answer from him, but that would come after, I don't know, 10 minutes of filibustering on the topic. So Lepartian, he's not, he's not that way, it sounds like. Well, I, th- I, think, I think there's, I detected, there were a couple of times, a couple of things I asked him about. I asked him about ex-dopers working in the sport. And he was kind of a bit vague about it, but then, but then I really touched a nerve when I asked about Lance Armstrong because I said, you know, there's a double standard here because you can have some some guys working the sport who doped, running teams, uh, you know, and uh, working in the media and et cetera, et cetera. I mean, this is an argument that everybody everybody rate. It's a real kind of debate. Uh, Alexander Vinikov, for example, running the Astana team. And, and, you know, he said, he said, oh, you know, he was back on the kind of McQuaid beat of saying, you know, Lance Armstrong has no place in cycling. I know what he did. The reality is, you know, he has no place. So, so, and there's a, there's a little bit of steel in him as well. And I think, you know, you look at the way he won that election as well, which is by stealth rather than by, you know, massively, uh, being very kind of, um, publicity aware in terms of his campaign. He, he he won that by stealth and I think he really shocked Brian Cookson with with the result of the UCI election as well. I think he's not to be underestimated. So so I, so whilst, you know, there's an element of him kind of being quite uh media friendly and glossy and all of that, I think I think underneath it all there may be someone who is who's actually a serious a serious player and and a politician as well. Yeah, I'd say it definitely shocked me when he won the presidency and I think maybe that's a testament to his skills at working the room kind of behind the scenes. I was totally shocked. I mean, I think we, Spencer, were all just planning on, okay, well, what's the next four years of the Cookson presidency going to look like? You know, is this like the American presidency where it's like the next four years where you can do really do crazy stuff? You know, your first four years, you have to be a real populist. And then the next four years is when you enact all your terrible policies that just uh, really, (laughs) really ruin your legacy. Stick to cycling. Oh, gosh, let's, uh, yeah, Yeah. (laughs) maybe we should get away from that. So, Jeremy... One of the topics that Lepartian hits on again and again in his um, in his public statements is technological fraud, and he, you know, has said that it is this sort of specter uh, sitting over pro cycling, and that he has some of these ideas to combat it, and that if it, if a top level rider were to be found doing it, it would just be the the worst thing in the sport. What's your impression of his? Um, of his feelings around this, is this populism? Is he? Do you, did you get the sense that he really does believe that it is a problem? Well, he he said the phrase he used was that, that was or the words he used was he said, "I worry that motors have been used, not that they are being used, that they have been used." Uh, and he said, "I have no proof, but it's not impossible," and that he wants wants to you know that he regards the role of the UCI is to ensure the credibility of the sport, or that's one of one of the key roles of these the UCI. Um, and he said, you know, they, they accept that in mass participation events, I mean, we've got, we've got a couple of high profile examples of people at kind of amateur level or uh, uh, in mass participation events, i.e. sportees who've been, who, who've been caught with motors, but none, none of the highest level in road racing, lots of suspicion, of course, but nobody yet confirmed. Um, and, and he said that they are they are stepping up and that they're going to publish a report at the end of January next year, um, which is only a few weeks away now, in which they will set out their strategy. He said the tablets, it, it, it's interesting as well, but he, he obviously felt that the systems, systems um, or the detection systems that the UCI had in place uh, up until recently 
which were overseen by Mark Barfield, who was another of the Cookson crew who uh, employed the UCI during that particular presidency. He obviously felt they were ineffective, and Mark Barfield has in fact left the UCI now, um, and uh, actually nowhere to be found. I've been trying to contact him, but haven't been able to. And that was the um, method of holding like a uh, your kid's iPad up to a uh, bicycle, maybe turning it on, maybe not. We weren't for sure what was going on there. Yeah, you, you turn off just you turn off Despicable Me too, okay, <laughs> and then you and, the, and then you switch on the, the the motor app. Yeah, that's how you do it. Yeah, you know we jest, but I have to wonder how much does Lapartian actually understand about technology in general, and in this specific instance of like how the motors are put in bikes, how they work, and then how the, the iPad detection things actually work. Absolutely. I don't think he understands any more than I do or any more than the average man in the street does. Um, and that's interesting because he's now employed Jean-Christophe Perrault, who may be a familiar name to people who follow the Tour of France, who finished second Tour of France in 2014, I think, yes, and recently retired. And he's an engineer with a with a, a, an experience of thermodynamics, I believe. I'm just looking at a web page here which describes in French his skills, but who's highly academically qualified supposedly to work in this material in this in this in these in these materials. And Jean Christophe Perrault um has just been uh employed as as the head of the technological fraud detection unit at, at, at the UCI. So which is quite interesting because presumably if motors were being used in recent years he would have ridden in the Peloton when motors were being used, if if you believe that if you believe that hypothesis. So he's someone who stepped out of the peloton and now has the academic skills and the back, the professional engineering background to understand more about the, you know, thermodynamics that will be, that will be, uh, implemented by the use of a motor and presumably will understand the detection methods better. But Lepartian did, did, did say that we need more than the tablets. He said, we're working on some new technologies for the future. He wouldn't say exactly what they were because I did ask him. I said, well, are you talking about, you know, uh, taking bikes apart at every uh, at every start line or every finish line. Are you going to look at every wheel? Because I know in last year's Tour de France, there was a lot of concern that wheels were being changed. I mean, that's been going on for some time, but last year particularly, there was concern that wheels were being changed and then put into put into uh, team cars on the roof of team cars and then not being tested at the finish. And some even being discarded was, was some stories I heard were that the, the, the wheels were being changed and never seen again. Um, so he he said they're going to they're going to clamp down on that kind of thing. And also he raised this prospect of having some kind of airport X-ray arch uh, across the road, which would be a random test oh, mid race. I like, that. That I like this would, idea. I this, I like this. Is I love great. that as well. How about a tunnel? Yeah, I love that. <laughs> Yeah, this yeah, kind of yeah, it, yeah. it kind of reminds me of uh, last year. I did the single speed cyclocross world championships, and they had you went through like the big bubble thing where oh. they're shooting like it's a bubble machine, and it's just like all these bubbles that you ride through that could be integrated into the arch. arch. Oh, yeah, God, this is a great that idea, would, and it would clean the bikes. Well, what and what you what <laughs> and what you what you want, of course, is sound effects so that every time yes. the magic pings. It pings. So if you have a peloton entirely on motor, it just goes, Bring. but but um anyway, everyone yeah, just exactly. everyone just looks around if there's only one noise and then, and you get real awkward. Yeah, it could be the end of lone breakaways, eh? Ooh. But, but, um, but anyway, anyway, so the, he said the, he said that the idea is to test all world all the world tour events, or he's hoping to test all the world world tour events, and uh, um 
you know, this is just one of the technologies they're looking at, but they will do try and implement more random testing so that it would be more kind of swooping, supposedly, in the same way that they did with, you know, that they do with out-of-competition controls and so on and so forth as well. So we'll, we'll see. But then, you know, I've got a voice in the back of my head saying, how much is this all going to cost as well? Yeah. I know. Well, that's the whole thing with this motorized fraud in general is, you know, in the last year, basically every interview I've done with world tour riders or people at the world tour level, I've had background conversations afterwards asking them about their impression of the threat of motorized fraud and whether they are scared of it, whether they, th- they think about it, whether they think it's happened. And I got to say, the lion's share of people I've spoken to have kind of laughed it off and said, no, this is ridiculous. You know, then the arguments that they've always said is that, A, the number of people who would have to be in on the conspiracy would be too large for it to be contained. Now, of course, we all know we lived through the doping area. Conspiracies can be contained for years and years and years. But then the other argument was that the idea of motorized fraud would be so abhorrent to the Peloton that if there were a rider who were found to be doing it, his or her reputation would be comp- so tarnished and he or she would be just so thoroughly run out of the Peloton that, and, and you know, be a social outcast that that itself would serve as the deterrent because, you know, okay, everyone can understand the idea of putting some junk in your veins uh, because we lived through that era, but the idea of tech fraud is like just so outside the realm of what constitutes, you know, okay cheating, I suppose. Well, I think that's, I think that's an interesting point. I mean, I've, I've done a couple of uh, kind of events in uh, the last few weeks to promote my fabulous new book, Montu, which is an ideal Christmas stocking filler, as you said earlier, uh, shameless <laughs> plug. But, but anyway, yeah, so I've done, I've done a couple of events and at those events, we've talked, we've talked about this, um, and it's been kind of 30 or 40 people just uh, in, a, in a bar having a chat about it, basically. But, what, but I did, I've asked every, every evening that I've done these, these talks, I've asked people, do, what do, do they think that motorized doping is worse than, you know, physical, physiological doping? And everybody thinks it's much worse as well. People can forgive uh, standard doping, but motorized doping, I think they, they find really, really offensive. You know, these are, these are cycling fans, and they, I think they think it's such a, such a kind of a, you know, an offence to the idea of the sport or to any idea of fair play. Whereas, I mean, it's a slightly perverse morality, isn't it? But I think I think I know what what they mean by that. You know, that, that using using a motor, you just might as well be in a car or on a scooter. Literally, that was the analogy that I used to use when explaining why regular doping was bad and needed to be locked 10 years ago to cycling fans. I said, well, what's to say that you couldn't just get on a motorbike and complete the Tour de France and win? This is why we need rules. And it was sort of this outlier argument that I would use. But now the prospect that people are actually doing it, I know, uh, makes me shake my head. Um, So another topic that you spoke about with Mr. Lepartian, um, since it was a very new topic was this topic of Peter Sagan and his expulsion from the 2017 Tour de France. And, um, you know, the UCI issued not a full mea culpa, but basically he and the UCI and Peter Sagan said that they were dropping the matter, that uh, they had come to a common ground, um, and that the UCI would launch this uh, video commissar 
for the future, that it would basically right. have the ability to look over video, replay it, basically do what all of us did after the Sagan expulsion, which is to re- replay GIFs. Yeah, I mean, couldn't they just have crowdsourced this whole idea and just had like, the, Twitter. the Twitter community uh, be in charge of uh, video replay for these big races? Oh, God, what a terrible idea. But, ah, well, then, you know, it was, just go general consensus, you know, <laughs> just big picture, not, 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 not listen to anyone in particular. What's going on there, Jeremy? Well, yeah, well, the, the first thing that, that he said that was interesting was he said there was no financial arrangement made with Sagan and his team. No, um, and really? There were no damages paid. I he, he insisted that. Yeah. I can't believe that. He I got to think that. that there was some sort of financial settlement. You really don't think so? Well, he, well, he said the UCI couldn't go to court against its own world champion, especially triple world champion, which I guess is a moot point. You know, the, you, the UCI, he, he's been wearing the jersey, you know, every every season for as long as we can all remember. And and the UCI goes to court against him. I guess that's a, that's a that's a fair point. That's not a scenario they want to see, is it? Obviously, double jeopardy. Um, I think then, is the legal term. Mm, double jeopardy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. And then <laughs> and then and then and then he said he said that you know they they acknowledged they acknowledged that uh, there'd been uh, uh, mistakes. They'd been a little bit hasty on the on the day. And I think I think this, the whole the whole sequence of events that day was really bizarre because. If you remember, it wasn't initially a disqualification. It was a relegation, wasn't it? If I remember correctly, at first for Sagan. And then uh, Cavendish came off his bus and said, I'd like Peter to explain what he was doing with his elbow, despite the fact his elbow didn't make any contact with Cav. And then it suddenly became a disqualification after uh, Dumish and Dota's director of sports, he's piled in on social media as well. So so we talked a bit about that, about the kind of rush to make a decision very quickly after after the um after the race. The number of commissaires who actually see video evidence, which it's I couldn't get a clear number from them on that, but it seemed like not many video not many commissaires had actually studied the videos from the helicopter, the head on shot, you know, the overhead shots, all the shots that we were all looking at in super slow motion on Twitter that the 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 commissaires hadn't hadn't looked at that they just had basically a very quick look and then been bombarded by lots of emotional blackmail from both sides. That's in, um, that's unbelievable. Then, yeah, that's a terrible. I, I can't I can't believe they didn't just is, flip on you know whatever the Eurosport or something and have a look. That's a real head scratcher. Well then also well then also the ridiculous thing you you have is then you know how, how many days later it was when we were in the Alps and was it, I think it was in the Alps at that stage with. Uh, where Bardet got the time penalty and Iran got the time penalty, then Bardet was there was an argument. Bardet would have the same penalty, and then Jonathan Vaught is piled on Twitter, you know, and it, and then they rescinded that, didn't they, as well? So you know, it was all over the place. And I mean, I think he's he's very embarrassed about it. He kind of flannelled. That was the one the one area actually where I thought his answers were were pretty poor, and he was kind of slightly embarrassed. But then I guess. From his point of view, he wasn't president of the UCI then. I mean, he was on the management committee, but he wasn't the president president of the UCI. But anyway, the upshot of it all is that they are going to uh, be able that they are going to have a dedicated video commissaire with access to all the television angles that we all see at home. I mean, it's bizarre, isn't it, that they wouldn't have that already? But anyway, that's what they're going to do. They have a dedicated video commissaire who will watch TV basically on every every screen, every angle that he can. They won't. Um, the weakness of that is, they, he said, it won't be the same video commissaire on every race. So it won't necessarily be the same guy on the Giro as it is on the Tour or the Vuelta or on the Tour of Flanders or whatever. Um, so it will be one of their pool of commissaires. I think there's 41, 42. Um, and it will be one of those. But, 
you'd think, wouldn't you, as well, that you'd want to have, if it's a video commissaire, you'd want that person to build up an, an expertise as well over, uh, you know, as much as a TV commentator builds up, <laughs> builds up expertise in analysing the race. You'd think that you'd want that commissaire to have a real insight into the way people ride and this, because everybody's got, you know, all the sprinters have got particular ways of sprinting. It doesn't make them dangerous. You know, they, they, they do it. They do have particular quirks. Cavendish has particular quirks of sprinting. Yeah, you'd um, think that you know. you'd think that they would want someone highly educated. Although, Jeremy, I must say that we here in the United States are very familiar with American football and the concept of video replay, and it does create such great drama when some plays happen on the field, and then the referees have to get in a little meeting, and then they have to go to the sideline where they have this hotline phone that calls to some mm. um, undisclosed location. No, it's like an iPad, though. Okay, it, it could be the same iPad that they use for the motor cheating. Checks. Well, I liked it when they called the, to the undisclosed location where you assume there's like this team of like SEAL Team 6 Navy ops like looking at film from every angle imaginable. Nah, it's, and, it's probably like comic book guy in The Simpsons yeah, or something like that. Yeah. So now the, the idea is that it will be a different cycling person doling out um, these type of rulings from looking at a, a Twitter feed. I don't know. I, I don't, I, I, I mean, want to have I mean, faith in it. Yeah. And he, he, he acknowledged the importance of social media. He, he acknowledged that, um, he said, we can't base our behavior on stuff that's on Twitter or Facebook, but we can't ignore it. And, uh, um, you know, if they, if they saw some genuine film of a rider, you know, it wasn't, wasn't, uh, adapted film in some way or wasn't edited in some way. But if you saw, if they saw some genuine film of a rider, holding onto a window for the whole of a climb, then obviously they, they'd act on that as well, you know. But but <clears throat> I, I don't think I don't think it was a particularly satisfactory answer. I mean, the, the, the creation of a dedicated video commissaire, you'd like to think, would, would, would help to refine their methods. But at the same time, I think one of the problems with the Sagan Cavendish thing was, was that they were operating in this kind of knee-jerk reaction situation where they didn't shut themselves away from the media. They didn't shut themselves away and consider all the, all the evidence and the footage. And they tried to make a... They made a decision very, very quickly when actually they should have considered it more thoughtfully. And I mean, there's no reason why they have to make an announcement about a relegation or a disqualification within an hour of the finish. They can wait until 9 o'clock that, that evening until they've had time to study all the footage, which I think is what they should be doing. No. Have, a, have a little uh, steak frites, have a few glasses of wine, maybe yeah, a little Dom yeah, Blanche for out. dessert, yeah. and then and let's get around to the relegation <laughs> thing once we're filled, yeah. have dinner. Exactly, yeah. Well, at the very least, uh, enlist people from uh, the different parties to talk about it with. Because I know in speaking with the Dimension Data folks, you know, they, they clammed up after that ruling was done for the rest of the tour. I had some chats with some Dimension Data people uh, further on in the tour, and they just felt like they hadn't been uh, brought in on any of the decision-making or any anything that had gone on, which is, I think, why they were upset. It's going to be interesting to see how this policy is enacted going forward, but it's definitely a story to watch in 2018. Yeah, absolutely. I think so. So, Jeremy, we'll let you get back to your evening here. But before uh, we let you go, I have a question for you about the British cycling fan base, because the big UK, the UK anti-doping, the UK AD investigation into Bradley Wiggins and Team Sky has, for the most part, wrapped up. And it does not seem like there's going to be any punishments handed out Um Bradley Wiggins has gone on to call this a big witch hunt and talk about how damaging it was for his life. So my last question for you today is, what is the room temperature opinion of the average 
British cycling fan? Are they skeptical of Wiggins? Do they see this as him being exonerated? What is the opinion around Bradley Wiggins and the uh, UKAD uh, investigation at this point? You know, I, I can't give you a straight answer on that because it's very confusing. I, as I say, I've, I've been doing these few talks uh, this autumn related to my book and mm-hmm. um, had a good chat with people there. It's normally evening talks where people have had a drink or two and they're quite relaxed. And the general cynicism towards uh, the whole saga of the Jiffy Bag, the TUEs, um, the UK AD investigation, the answers that were given by Dave Bellsford and Shane Sutton to all the questions that were put to them, uh, in the House of Parliament, don't forget, as well, mm-hmm. by uh, by a parliamentary group of MPs. On my experience, my face-to-face experience is that there's a high level of cynicism towards towards the whole affair. Um, but then at the same time, Wiggins is box office still. I mean, he, he, he did his first, I don't know if people in America are aware, but he's trying to establish himself as a rower in the hope of competing in the Tokyo Olympics. Um, bizarrely, and he's been coached by ex-Olympic rower James Cracknell, who's an Olympic gold medalist, and he competed in an indoor rowing event on Saturday. Uh, we last, saw the images. Gone. He looked kind of he looked real sweaty yeah. and kind of uh, he didn't look up to full shape. Yeah, two things on that. For starters, indoor rowing seems like the least fun thing you could ever do. <laughs> like that looks horrible. It's like riding <laughs> yeah, a trainer, only, only worse. <laughs> I think he, he looked like he was going on stage with ACDC. He looked like yeah. he was doing Angus Young. The tats, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I couldn't, I, yeah, I, mean, I, I can't work, it, work out the appeal of it, but I think part of it for him is he's very aware that his reputation has been uh, brought into question and now he's trying to kind of reinvent himself, you know, so he, he to, to cement his place in the British kind of, you know, Hall of Fame. Uh, but, I mean, I think for most for most people, he, he's he's... Most cycling fans uh, uh, here want to want to think the best of him because he was very popular. He was very well liked, um, you know, as a as a regular bloke, as a regular guy. Um, but I think people are really struggling now to understand what was really going on, and people do do think that they were fiddling the system basically to give to give those particular TUEs, you know, in advance of grand tours, and that they think the jiffy bag. The fact that we still don't know it's in Jiffy Bag, you know, that it must have contained something, something suspicious. But as I say, every time he goes and does something in public, whether he whether it's a six day or whether he, you know, he whether he does uh, a running event, whatever, people love him. You know, the people there they love him. But you know, my face to face experience is, as as I say, a lot of skepticism towards towards his reputation. So. I think these things, as you know from your own experience in the States of uh, big scandals and cycling, these things take quite a long time to play out. So my estimation is that we have still got some way to go. Well, so Jeremy, that brings me around to the second thing I was going to say about this. And I'm seeing shades of the old uh, Lance comeback 3.0 or 2.0 or whatever, whichever one it was where, you know, he was fine. He was out of the woods. He wasn't going to get busted. But then he had to come back to the sport and do something. And that's why he ended up getting busted. And eh, Wiggins is going to be back in the testing pool if he wants to be an Olympic athlete again, eh? Yeah, I, I, I kind of think, I, I don't know what's going on with him. I really don't. I mean, I've, I've heard some stories about, you know, I think he's desperate to maintain his profile, desperate to maintain his place in the public eye. Um, and I, I, I know, I know that he has been his agency who deals with him, who uh, represents him, has also been trying to get him involved in kind of 
TV events and uh, punditry and you know commentating and stuff like that as well. So there's been there's you know he's been touted around to do to do stuff within sport and I think some stuff outside of sports as well to keep his profile high. And you've got to remember that you know he was basically a rock star briefly for kind of two years around the time of the London Olympics and after winning the 2012 tour as well. You know he was he was doing his modelling contracts. People were people you know the the best tailors in the, in the West End of London were queuing up to have him dressed in their suits because, you know, everybody regarded him as this very cool guy who was a, a mod, you know, one of the Tour de France. He was the, the epitome of cool, basically. Yeah. And he probably was. There was, that, there was this moment, you know, when he rang the bell to open the London 2012 Olympics in, in a yellow T-shirt, not not a yellow jersey, but in a yellow T-shirt. Um, you know, and then just won the Tour de France and then went on to win the Olympic gold. There was this moment where he was absolutely, you know, at the very top of world sport. But he's fallen a long way now. And I think I think the images we saw of him rowing haven't helped. And I think also, you know, obviously the fact that we don't know fully still what was in the Jiffy bag, it's, it's not going to go away. To think it's going to go away is just naive because it isn't going to go away. Well, maybe he should just become an actual rock star. I mean, he likes guitars. Yeah. And he's got the tattoos and the hair. So maybe that's a little bit of a safer bet. Better photos than rowing on an indoor trainer, Definitely. too. You oh, can just lip sync. Just lip sync the whole thing. Jeremy, we really appreciate you coming on the show. Um, it sounds like you had a real fun time with David Lepartien. I believe there may be a story coming up on Velo News uh, with your interview. So again, everyone... It's Jeremy Whittle, Von Two, Sacrifice and Suffering on the Giants of Provence. Great stock, stocking stuffer for that cyclist in your life. And Jeremy, we wish you a uh, happy holidays. Thanks again. Thank you for having me, and happy holidays to everybody stateside as well. Spencer, I'm a fit individual. You're a fit individual. We ride bikes, we run, we swim, we eat healthy, we eat we live in Boulder, like the healthiest city in America. Yeah, and plus our weather is broken right now, so it's basically sunny and warm forever and ever, and we'll have, you know, we can ride our bikes as much as we want. Uh, sorry to those on the East Coast if it's a sore subject. Yeah, guys, ooh, God, get a bigger coat. Anyway, we are perfect <laughs> candidates for our good friends over at Health IQ. Health IQ is the life insurance company that works specifically with health-conscious, healthy individuals like us. You can go to their website and submit race reports, screen grabs of your Strava or Garmin Connect files, basically all types of information that proves you are a healthy individual and get a great quote on life insurance. Spencer, what's the URL that they have for us? Yeah, just go to healthiq.com slash velonews. Get that free quote and they'll take care of you. All right, back to the show. Okay, Spencer, that was, a, that, was some, that was a very informative chat with Jeremy about what the heck is going on over at the UCI. I was really tempted to test out my British accent on him, but I was afraid he might get offended. So yeah, we'll save that for another time. Probably best you did it. Uh, but anyway, I have some takes on uh, what old Mr. Lepartiente was talking about and some of the, mm. some of the topics he, yeah. um, he is choosing to discuss. First off, with the motorized fraud and the obsession with trying to police motorized fraud in the Peloton. Um, I guess I do somewhat support him in trying, you know, making this an issue and trying to clean it up. Like I said with the, with the chat with Jeremy, in a lot of the 
um, background conversations that I've had with people within the sport, there's the opinion that it's not that big a deal. Obviously, it was a hot button issue the other week when Phil Guyman's book came out and um, insinuated that he believed that uh, Fabian Conchalara had been utilizing motorized fraud. But what I don't understand is the, the possibility that lots and lots and lots of resources are going to be steered towards this. Yeah, where is this money coming from? Like, I, I mean, the UCI, it's, you know, the, they do, I think they do all right for themselves, but this would be a big bump up in terms of the resources and manpower. And if they get these crazy archway thingies that are going to test the rolling Peloton for motors, right? Like we were talking about, uh, I mean, you know, the, the bubble machine alone would be quite expensive. That's true. You know, someone's got to pay for that and that, you know, the UCI's funding comes from licensing fees and licensing races. And um, I just, you know, I mean, is this going to be the equivalent of like your USA Cycling license all of a sudden doubling in cost because David Lapartian <laughs> needs to buy a new fleet of uh, iPads? The other thing about this, and I brought this up with Jeremy, was just that I... I'm very skeptical of Lepartian's uh, technical know-how with this stuff. This kind of feels like when your dad walks by and is like, oh, my iPad's broken, like, just doesn't work anymore. And you're like, well, you know, you, you need to charge it once in a while. You got to, oh, you turned it off and you yeah. need this button on the side. I, <laughs> I mean, I, I'd like to see what John Christophe Moreau has to say, because to me that he, he has a little more of a, I think authority when it comes to the technological side of this. And that's, I mean, this is such a complicated matter. It's just, it's, it's, I'd say equally complicated as, as all of the science that went into catching, you know, EPO cheating and all Mm -hmm. this, uh, you know, implementing the biological passport for, for doping, doping. It's, uh, it's, it's very, very tricky. It's true. And, you know, some of the complaints that we have heard publicly about it is that it's a red herring, you know, that Mm. by making a big deal out of the potential for motorized fraud, it's, Merely his way of steering attention away from all the other problems going on with the UCI, everything from the UCI's um, failed attempts at, you know, globalization to the UCI and ASO never having really resolved their problems to, um, you know, political problems uh, with investigating things like the UK. Equality for women's racing. women's racing. Yeah. It means so many other pressing um, topics to get into out there. So what about what he had to say about the uh, the decision around Peter Sagan? This and, is crazy. Yeah. This is so backwards. It, we've got these officials deciding the fate of the Tour de France, biggest race of the season, biggest race in the world, and uh, they just don't have they don't switch on the TV to watch Eurosport to like see actually what happened at the finish. Yeah, I mean, I remember when the decision came down and it was fairly soon after the finish of the race. I mean, it was within a couple hours. And yeah, you know, I had major questions about that because I felt like some of the um, footage that really slowed down the action and zoomed in on things like Sagan's elbow and Cavendish's handlebars didn't come out for a few hours. You know, it, and, and that was the type of footage that you know, as, as the lay person we watched and it really created doubts in our minds. I will say, I didn't think that any of the footage I saw was completely damning one way or the other, but it was strong enough to create doubts in my mind that, you know, Peter Sagan had been throwing elbows around indiscriminately. It's, it's a sprint, right? I, I don't think it was, it was 
flagrant enough t- to warrant a complete ejection from the race. And I don't it, think anyone would say that. And again, I mean, I was at the Tour de France this past year and I had a lot of conversations with people within the sport about the incident and what they thought. And there was sort of this sentiment of, well, Peter Sagan is a rough and tumble guy and this was sort of the straw that broke the camel's back. You know, it was a very public, um, it was a very public crash that at face value looked like Peter Sagan had been being overly rough and maybe there was a, a, a you know a decision to try and make an example out of him whatever um, either way by having a rush to judgment like that and as Jeremy said with the potential that um, you know they were under this real serious time crunch and didn't give it the due diligence that it deserved um, yeah you know that's bad that's kind of a Mickey Mouse operation and also you know the fact that they settled this and I, the whole settlement doesn't make sense to me. Like, how, how can how can the UCI not have have paid some damages to Sagan, right? Isn't that the point of a settlement? Yeah. Like, like uh, how is this some sort of is this like lost in translation because we just are stupid Americans and we have our own court system that it revolves around litigation? Is it just sort of a? It's actually them just you know shaking hands and making up. Well, I mean, you raised some great points in your garbage takes from this past weekend of the way that they could try and uh, make it right, which was like uh, adding up all of the different, um, uh, you know, impressions that were lost, the sponsor impressions that were lost. And then um, having so many uniques. I know. But then having him be repaid in unique impressions on the UCI's website. So like every page you'd click on would just be like a thousand different pictures of Peter Sagan. Mm, I like that. And you're like, like, man, I just want U23 women's cyclocross (laughs) results from the World Cup. I don't want this huge picture of Peter Sagan. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to take a while to to pay him back if that's how they're going to do it. Peter Sagan pop-up ads on (laughs) uci.ch. People love pop-ups. That's true. People are all get a lot of emails about that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, bad. Uh, Finally, Wiggins Gate. I mean, it's not over. No. Um, I think that Wiggins is out of the woods, but there are British MPs saying that they are going to have sort of a follow-up investigation to try and bring some more smoke to it. But, um, you know, I thought it was really interesting what Jeremy said that, you know, in interacting with these British cycling fans when they had a couple drinks in them, they started to open up and be really cynical about the situation and, um, you know, to to have lost a bit of faith. I mean, to me, that is very representative of the attitudes around Lance Armstrong and cycling in general, sort of 2008, 2009, after Puerto and after people started to really have some writing on the wall that the sport was was you know full of dopers yeah it's an interesting comparison and um i with with the lance obviously he had such a different presence given his um experience with cancer and his charitable involvement with the live strong foundation it took so much more for the cycling's general cycling public's general opinion of him to turn just because of all of that backstory. I think Wiggins doesn't quite have that sort of reputation. He's a great cyclist, popular. British fans loved him. And he obviously, one of the, easily the most versatile rider of his generation, if not ever. But he doesn't quite have that public goodwill, I think, because he isn't um, as involved beyond simply his sporting accomplishments. It is true, though, that, you know, he was on the trajectory to have otherworldly fame. You know, he did attain a very high level of fame with the Olympics and the Olympics win. And actually, um, in the lead up to the 
Rio Olympics, I spoke on the phone with the person who was his agent at the time and representing the firm, and he had signed with this huge global um, publicity firm that had like backed David Beckham and some of these big um, actors and celebrities. And the agent told me that their ambitions for Bradley Wiggins was to get him on the same level as Beckham, to make him a generational star who would have the staying power from a sponsorship and visibility perspective to basically like set him up for life, setting his him up for life, his kids up for life, his kids' kids up for life, to create generational wealth and have him be a star who could basically always demand a pretty high sum for publicity. And I don't think that's the case anymore. In fact, he's not they, like that um, firm cut ties with him during oh. the whole Jiffy Bag thing. He's now working with MNC Saatchi Merlin, which is another sizable um, representation firm. And I think that they're probably going to try to do something uh, a, a similar sort. But you know, the ambitions that this agent was talking to me about a year and a half ago, just that did not come to fruition. I mean, Bradley Wiggins, here he is on an indoor trainer with like a headband on. No, the rowing machine. <laughs> or an indoor rowing machine yeah. with a headband uh, on. Yeah, you know? not a good look. That's not David Beckham no, level. Not, not a good look. It's a little funny to me as well, Fred, because, yeah, the financial imperative is there. You could make a lot of money. But I never got the impression that Wiggins is... Uh, particularly driven towards stardom and, and being such a public figure. He always has been a little prickly and, and a little withdrawn in mm -hmm. some ways. So it's kind of a little surprising that that would have been an objective to turn into this worldwide superstar. Yeah, I think, you know, there's the there's obviously the financial side of it. But then also, um, you know, it's... It's, you know, all of these guys at a certain point are driven by accomplishment and by ego. And when you get to that level and to go from a cyclist who is a world renowned cyclist and a big dog in your sport to then go to being a world renowned sports person and a big dog in that level. And then to think that there's another level to get to above that, which is sort of just overall celebrity. And there is a pathway for you to get there, or at least there's an agent telling you there's a pathway to get there. Um, I could see the appeal yeah. of that. I, I just don't see him actually, though, having the potential to reach a Beckham level of popularity, regardless of the Jiffy Bag thing. I mean, cycling's big, but it's, it's not that big. Uh, and uh, That's true. And Bend It Like Wiggins does not have the same ring to it. <laughs> bend It Like Wiggins. Oh. Bend, bend that jiffy bag. <laughs> Coming to you. Oh, gosh. What what was in that jiffy bag? I don't know. Jiffy? Jiffy. Well, I'm glad to finally figure out what a jiffy bag is. Yeah, it took us a while. I just assumed like it was couple, like a yeah. handbag. No. And no, it is like a bubble envelope, yeah. the type that you might like mail some sort of... I thought it was more a Ziploc bag. Precious thing to someone. Yeah. 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 Oh, yes. Would you please send me the document in a jiffy bag, lads? Well, no, I thought it was more like, hey, uh, hey, mom, I bought you this uh, like homemade jewelry from someone on Etsy and they mailed it to you in something called a jiffy bag. Yeah, you could do that actually. Yeah, yeah that's basically it. You're closer than I was. I thought it was like something you put weed in. Yeah, well, we are in Colorado. Yeah. All right, Spencer, interesting, interesting episode of the Villain News Podcast. Before we get out of here, I think we got to do some off the front, off the back because 
you know, it's kind of the quiet time for cycling, but we are having some news stories bounce around. A lot of stuff going on on Twitter. So let's get to it. What's uh, what's off the front? What's off the back? Yeah, well, why don't you start? What's off the front? What's on trend? What's what's doing? What's hot right now? What's okay. hot in the streets? Hot in the streets. I have a couple of things that are off the front. First of all, off the front, guilt. Oh, yeah, guilt. And not the type of guilt involving like jiffy bags or anything like that, but uh, finding yourself at the holiday party oh, yeah. and being like, you know, trying to keep to race weight or somewhere close to it. Oh, wow, they have a huge cheese plate and a melted cheese bowl and chocolate with cheese and crackers and wings. Yeah, guilt. I usually go for the cookies myself, but yeah. you're, you're spot on. Yeah, I think I had three parties in a row last week. Yeah, so it was it, over the top. This past week and weekend, I found myself at multiple holiday-related engagements just staring at the hors d'oeuvre plate being like, yeah, buddy, I'm going to dive right into Screw you. Screw it. Why not? Yeah. Um, okay, another off the front. Instagram photos of people riding in the snow. We finally had some blizzard action go on in the Midwest and the East Coast, and I've noticed that my gram feed filling up with uh, super tough individuals being like, fished out the cross bike. Rode around the snow, you know, get those base miles in. Ooh, nice. There's no follow-up Instagram photos, though, of them, like... In, the frostbite? In bed, watching cartoons, because they're sick. Yeah. Like, home from work. Taking, kinda, taking a bath. Terrible. A hot bath. Yeah. Terrible head cold. Feel, feel real bad. Finally, I think, an off-the-front PFP. Yeah. Pauline Ferrand Pruvo. Right back at it. Our favorite cyclist with a jewel in her tooth. Does she still have that? Uh, I don't know, but I always appreciated that. She won a uh, pretty big cyclocross yep, race. Yep, former world champion. Yeah. She's back at it on the cross circuit after, I think, two years away. She won uh, Saturday, or excuse me, she won Sunday's race yeah. in, in Belgium. And that was, I think, the driving cross race. She beat Sonicant. Yeah, I mean, that's legit. That's legit. Sonicant, reigning world champion. Yeah. Won many races this year. Yeah. So PFP has had some ups and downs. Well, some a lot of downs in the last few years, but yeah. this is a big old up. So I think I'm calling it now. I think she's going to win cross worlds. Oh, yeah, that's right. Calling your shot. We'll see about that. Well, it's awesome to have her back. It is. All right. What's off the front for you? My off the front, uh, along the lines of what you said, snowy cyclocross races. Yeah. It was a great weekend for snowy cyclocross races. You had... Uh, North Carolina Grand Prix in the snow. The South, the, the American Southeast got hit with a snowstorm. Ice weasels up in New England. Little, uh, it's a fun local race they have there. Uh, the EKZ cyclocross race in Switzerland. They got a big tour of cross races there in Switzerland. That one was snowy. Even that driven cross race that uh, Pauline Ferrand Prevost won. It looked like they were getting a little bit of snow there in Belgium, which is always a scary thought because they don't usually get snow there, and it's a little hard for them to handle it sometimes. Um, I'm also going to say off the front are kit manufacturers Ooh. because there's a lot of new team kits being revealed yeah. the last week or so. Got an awesome gallery of that on the site if you want to check them out. But a lot of them have been unveiled in the last week or so. The big pro teams, uh, we got to see Marcel Kittle, a little sneak peek of him and the red of Katusha Alpeson. That's exciting. And uh, more to come too. Hot take. I like BMCs. They have some blue on no, the kit now? D- no. I kind of like it. No, it does yeah. not look good. That does not look good. I'm into it. No. I'm into it. Fred, wrong. Garbage sick. Garbage. <laughs> All right. What's off the back? 
So I have a couple off the backs. Uh, my first off the back is big fake stupid tattoos. <laughs> oh, you're calling out Astana. See, I was actually going to call them off the front for their sense of humor. Because who knew? Who knew the Kazakh team actually had a sense of humor? So if uh, you don't know what we're talking about, Astana posted a video on their Twitter feed where in the video, the new Astana riders are really scared at a tattoo parlor and they end up getting huge Astana, like just bold print block letter Astana tattooed on them. They wouldn't need a team kit with that with that tattoo. It's big that, old tattoos. It's that visible and big. Uh, these are of course fake tattoos. Yeah. It's well, a good, it's a good good Twitter prank. I, I appreciated it. I did too. And yeah, maybe that is true. Astana they're trying something new out. They've been the kind of severe cold black box dark team in the past and you know, hey, Little charm campaign. Little charm campaign. I like it. A little warmer, gentler side to old Vina Kurov's team. Uh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Real fun team. I'm going to go be hanging out there at the tour this year. Nice. Uh, also off the back, uh, Hill Repeats. I did Hill Repeats this weekend. I don't know why. That's a weird choice, Fred. Yeah. Bad choice. Not that much fun. Okay. Well, my off the back, I'm going to say, is anyone who lines up to race against Matthew Vanderpool, because he's pretty much... Continuing to win every single cyclocross race ever this season, and I just can't see anyone beating him. He's just too good. I think his brother, other Vanderpool, won a, we- won a race this weekend, too. Yeah, but he won the race that Matthew Vanderpool didn't show up to. So. Uh, yeah. so Vanderpool's in general, Van- again. Eh, it's more Matthew for me. Okay. David Vanderpool, he's sort of cherry-picking the races, the guys that don't show up to. All right. Anything else off the back? That's about it for me. All right. Well, that was a fun Velo News podcast. We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at webletters at competitorgroup.com. We'll also post links to the stories we talked about today on velonews.com. Subscribe to the Velo News podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And while you are there, please leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Velo News on Facebook at facebook.com slash magazine and follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash News. The Velo News podcast is produced by Velo News, which is owned by Pocket Outdoor Media, the thoughts and opinions expressed on the Villainous Podcast are those of the individual. And as always, we leave you with the Brooklyn Boogaloo Blowout playing the Bernard Purdy Classic Soul Drums. Oh, 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 oh